Hey, Amy, do you remember what the internet used to look like, like back in the early 2000s? Yeah, I remember a lot of black backgrounds with repeating patterns. I think there was a lot of clip art, right? It was really ugly is my memory of it. But, I mean, it's hard to generalize because you really never knew what you were going to find. You know, it was, it was unpredictable. Yeah, it was definitely ugly, partly because the technology was very raw. But I think the key difference was that word that you used, unpredictable. It was very surprising. You never knew what you were going to get from one site to the next. No two websites looked alike. And that is what we're going to talk about today. How the internet evolved into what it looks like in 2019. And whether designers, in our efforts to establish guidelines and best practices, whether we've actually made a world where everything looks the same. Welcome to Wireframe from Adobe and Gimlet Creative, a podcast about good user experience design, how we shape technology to fit into our lives. I'm Koi Vin, Principal Designer at Adobe. Today I'm here with producer Amy Standen. Hi, Koi. So this is an episode about a very visual phenomenon that we are talking about on a podcast, which could get a little abstract, right? Right, but we're going to make it work. We'll be putting some examples online, and you can find them at adobe.ly slash wireframe. So I want to start by talking about the old internet, like back in the early 2000s. Amy, do you remember Cliff Kwong from the first episode of our last season? I do. So Cliff is the co-author of a book called User-Friendly, and here's how he describes those early days. When that first cohort of designers was entering the world, they were very much creating things that couldn't be done in any other medium, and it felt like a, you know, it felt like freedom. There was very much this idea that, like, you could do anything, especially in the era of Flash, which, you know, was a really blank canvas onto which you could project a lot of things, like animation and color and things that you couldn't do on the printed page. There was this sense that the rules as you know them had been dropped or potentially were up for negotiation. At the time, everybody was just drunk on possibility. I mean, it just felt like you could do anything. Is that how you remember it, Koi? I definitely remember it, the everybody being drunk part. <laughs> <laughs> was there like this idea that you could, you know, like it was a, just a blank slate? Yeah, very much so. For me, one of the things that really drew me to it was the fact that we were practically reinventing everything every six months or so. It was a bit unruly, but constant reinvention was the name of the game. Had you always been a quote-unquote digital designer? No. I started my career in traditional graphic design, doing logos, identities, brochures, that sort of thing. But like a lot of designers at that time, I was pretty quickly drawn into the world of technology. And it was exciting. Everyone was trying to figure out what exactly would work online. And the natural way to start figuring that out was by taking what we knew already about how design worked in print and in analog and applying it to these new problems. That's what Cliff observed, too. They were bringing an unconscious culture of aesthetics, reference points, influences, and all this kind of stuff that they were carrying with them, right? Which I think is radically different today because all ultimately, like, those reference points, they were inherited from an offline world, not an online world. I think that's very common with new kinds of media. I think one of the cliches we've all learned is that when a new medium comes along, it spends a certain amount of time emulating what came before it. And that was a natural part of the internet at that time. 
And that is just different today, right? I don't think your starting point is a bunch of like record albums that you saw. It's not like a cafe or collages that your friend made you. The center point of where culture is happening is not in that offline world anymore. And it's not just culture that's more rooted in the online world today, right? I mean, it's commerce, too. That's what a lot of the modern Internet is really for. Right. Today, everything really has a clear purpose, and it's largely to sell you something or to get you to transact in some way. And that wasn't the case before. There was e-commerce back then, for sure, but there was just a ton of experimentation or personal expression online. Now, today, if you want to build a website, you can turn to any number of hosted services like a Squarespace or a Wix, and you'll get a really beautiful out-of-the-box solution. But the purpose is pretty clear and pretty consistent. It's to build a business and to sell you something. Back in the day, you'd go to something like GeoCities, and the purpose was much more open. The idea was you could build anything you want, whether it's a page for your cat or some weird art experiment. Yeah, when I look at the internet today, it is such a far cry from that. It's so much more professional. And this is something you've written about, right? That we seem to be in kind of a rut aesthetically. Yes, I've written about it and I've complained about it. (laughs) I first started noticing this four or five years ago, but I'm far from the only one. I think a lot of people have remarked that a lot of websites basically have the same layout where everything's centered and in sans serif and you scroll in the same way. And a lot of apps are very, very similar to one another, too, to the point where sometimes people get confused what app they're using. So there's definitely a sameness that has pervaded in digital products for a while now. If there was a rebellious or artistic or pioneering spirit from a long time ago, what we have today is just very sophisticated, very intentional, and very, very transactional in a way. That feeling of being drunk on possibility that Cliff talked about, the idea that the rules are up for negotiation, I worry that to some degree we've lost this. But I wanted to hear another perspective on this too. So I turned to a friend of mine, someone who's not just a designer, but also a well-respected critic of design. This is Jessica Helfand. Jessica, when you surf the web... I don't know if people say that anymore. (laughs) Can I ask you just to characterize what you see? Uh, It's very white. Uh, It's very sans serif. It's very uh, uninteresting. And who decided our pictures would look good cropped in circles? I'd like to talk to that person. Now it's mandatory. And they look terrible. (laughs) Can we just talk about that? That's not the geometric principle (laughs) that, you know, squares would have been so much more dynamic. Jessica is a designer, and she also teaches design at Yale, among other places. And I wanted her on this show because I think she's exceptionally good at questioning things that a lot of us working designers don't have the time or the perspective to question. This episode, the premise is that there's a kind of a monoculture and a great sameness in in branding and in the way apps look, websites look, and just the, the overall approach to aesthetics. Do you agree with that? I agree with that. And your premise is why I sometimes tell people I'm a recovering designer. I have a great (laughs) antipathy about the direction design is going. When I look at the brands that are growing up on the internet exclusively or growing up on mobile exclusively, they almost all look like they're just uh, departments of, of a single holding company. I'm just wondering why you think that we've landed on this particular aesthetic 
the thing that comes to mind, which is analogous, but not it's not brands per se, but it is, I think, speaks to the question you're asking, which is how a look becomes a look, how the visual vernacular becomes what it is. And the thing that comes to mind for me is the fact that people who design book jackets are availing themselves of the biggest fonts possible because they know these books need to sell on Amazon. So the fact that postage stamp-sized book interpretations are actually what moves the publishing industry. I wonder if there are people sitting around saying, well, if this works, then I'm going to copy it. So in other words, basically, you know, one style or look works for one company for some reason online. And then everyone else just says, well, I think I'll do that too. Is that what she's saying? Yeah, that's exactly what she's saying. And I think she's right. Someone solves a problem in a particularly effective way on the internet or in an app. People rush to copy it because they see that that solves a problem that they have too. And that particular solution proliferates very quickly. Koi, is that a bad thing? I mean, are we giving sameness a bad rap? That's what we're going to tackle after the break. We'll be right back. This episode of Wireframe is brought to you by Adobe XD. Adobe XD brings with it an ecosystem of hundreds of plugins, integrations, and design resources, which means you can customize XD to fit the way you work. Martin McCulley is a UX UI lead for PosterScope, one of the world's biggest marketing specialists for media agencies. He and his team are all about the plugins. We use Silicon Connector, which lets us access our company Dropbox account for our design assets. We use Content Generator. That lets us import uh, JSON data and outside data to help design with. And the other big one that we use is the Maps Generator. That lets us pull in live data from Google Maps. So it's a fantastic tool to very, very quickly create hyper-localized maps. Martin doesn't only use these plugins. He can name the developers who built them. They're all part of the same community, organized around one main goal, to shape the future of experience design. It's very much user-focused because the developers are XD users themselves. They need to solve a problem that turns out lots of other people need to solve as well. XD reimagines how designers and developers create user experiences. Learn more at adobe.ly slash Gimlet. So before the break, Koi, I was asking you whether having a lot of sameness online is really such a bad thing. Yeah, it's not a bad thing to have a certain amount of predictability or reliability because you want to help orient people. You want them to be able to accomplish their goals. And to be honest, they're not there to experience your artistic vision. They're there to actually get something done in their lives. That's what best practices are for. They exist in order to make things easy to use from the user standpoint, but they can get stagnant. Jessica Helfen, the critic and designer we heard from earlier, she told me that she thinks we should be able to have a baseline of predictability that makes things easier to use without losing that beautiful unpredictability of the early internet. It seems to me that should be our goal. I'm thinking of like a beautiful grid. You know where things are. I wonder if that basic equation can still exist and whether the, we don't give up on the chaos right away because the chaos is what makes us human. That's my big concern. It, it, the flatland of erasure for me is about sameness where we're giving something up. 
So in other words, I guess we need to leave space for designers, right, to explore or add a little visual chaos to their work. That's what keeps visual design dynamic. And she would say human, right? Exactly. But this isn't always happening. Jessica said that the problem is that a lot of times designers aren't given that space to insert their own voice or chaos, to use her word. Instead, they're told to bring this very particular established aesthetic, this idea of what, quote-unquote, good taste or good design is supposed to look like. And meanwhile, we're all drawing from basically the same Apple products and the same Instagram feeds. And so design isn't this remote thing anymore. Everyone has an opinion about what it should look like. And so it's a wonderful thing because you don't have to explain design to people anymore. Everybody has an Instagram feed. Everybody thinks they have taste. In the old days, you called somebody who had better taste than you and maybe they helped your taste be better. I mean, I sound like somebody who's, you know, from 300 years ago, but, but I think it's actually important. We're all, you know, more visually sophisticated. Our appetite for beautiful things or better things or more well-functioning things is better. It's a fantastic time to be a designer. But then you ask the question that brings us here today. Why does everything look the same? I think it's related. What do you think of that, Koi? Yeah, I don't 100% agree with her perspective there because I think it can sound a bit like only some people should be entrusted to have good taste. And I don't agree with that. But I do think that she's right in that a lot more people have opinions about design than they ever did before. Design is much more present in their lives and they are touching it, like literally touching it on their phones in a way that they never did in the past. And so that's really fundamentally changed the equation for how designers work because we no longer have a monopoly over good taste. I mean, if we ever did. You have to contend with everyone's opinions now in a way you never did before. And one thing I've wondered is whether this aesthetic that we see a lot of today hasn't served another function too, which is making technology in general seem like this friendly, non-threatening force in our lives when in fact there's a lot to be worried about when it comes to technology. We talked about this just a couple of episodes ago when we had our privacy roundtable. Tech is really on the defensive these days. So I ran this idea by Jessica. These companies, their their aesthetic is getting friendlier and friendlier and, and maybe less and less threatening at the same time as there's greater and greater scrutiny about their business practices, about whether they're actually a net positive or net negative for society as a whole. And is that a coincidence? Wow, that's a question. I want you to define friendly. Okay, that's fair. I think friendly in this case is um, a lack of sharp corners, (laughs) (laughs) a lack of texture. When you talk about friendly design, it is a kind of don't rock the boat thing. The rounded corner doesn't upset anybody. The circular photograph looks like every other circular photograph. Email looks like email. And I think your idea about scrutiny and trust and access is a fascinating one. And I think there's some, there's some real merit to it. I'm not sure she really answered that question. Yeah, you're right. But to be fair, I don't think anybody could answer that question with a simple yes or no. Sometimes it's really hard to identify the intent in design and certainly in branding. I mean, I don't think anybody's sitting around saying, we're going to solve our problems by making our brand look a little bit friendlier. But I do think that at some level, these brands, these companies, they really want us to be comfortable with them. 
And so they've chosen designs that look friendly and unthreatening. They really want to reassure us that they're trustworthy partners in modern life. So where does that leave designers? Well, a point we keep coming back to is that designers have a huge role to play in all of this. They have to keep pushing, and they have to keep trying to break the mold and push back against sameness. I've certainly heard this this critique. This is Emily Hayward from a design company called Red Antler. She's one of the founders and also the chief brand officer. And our focus is on startups. Red Antler is a really hot design company right now. They did the branding for Casper Mattress, for Allbirds, for Pro Skincare Line, a lot of brands that you'd recognize. And a lot of brands that kind of get lumped together into this label of millennial brands. So I think that there are absolutely some design trends at play. And, you know, I've seen people on Twitter who will sort of pull a bunch of screen grabs and say, everything looks the same. And I've also had people say to me, you know, why is everything sans serif? Which I'm like, how do people even know the word sans serif? Like, when did that become part of just public vernacular? Um, So one of my responses is, well, there's really only two choices. There's Mm. serif and there's sans serif. Like, if you actually look at the typeface decisions that are being made, there's Well, there's also black letter. There's, you know. Sure, that's that's true. I I think people aren't really thinking that. Calligraphy. Good point. Fair enough. Um, I think that it would be naive to say that there aren't themes that are driving a lot of the design choices of these businesses. Maybe there's a certain color palette and a certain kind of font that's being chosen more frequently. But do those brands make you feel the same way? Is their tone of voice the same? Is their purpose the same? And I think more often than not, the answer is no, which is why you see some businesses that are runaway successes and others that are just sort of, oh, yeah, that startup launched and then faded just as fast. Can you go into that a little bit? Because I think some people might argue that if the aesthetics are similar or consistent or maybe repetitive, um, then the outcomes of the feeling that we're going for might be the same. So aesthetics are obviously a key driver of the feeling. But I think that if aesthetics are not being driven by a larger strategy, then they are just that. They're just aesthetics. And I don't think they're going to make you ultimately feel much of anything. You know, I I don't think that the conversation can start with aesthetics. I think they're a tool in the toolkit that are essential, um, but they're one part of the story. Quite when I hear this, when I listen to this, what I hear her saying is that we're getting hung up on the wrong thing, right? Like, she's saying, of course, there are visual trends on the Internet like anywhere else. But the web, at least these businesses, are still all trying to do very different and interesting things. Yeah, I hear that, too. But that doesn't mean that the visual trends themselves aren't important or worth looking at. They say really specific things about the world that we live in and how we feel about it. So I asked Emily, when you look at the themes that we're in right now, we may be exiting them as you suggest, but could you venture a guess as to what these themes mean? I can try. (laughs) So I think that from a business perspective, a lot of these disruptive direct-to-consumer businesses are looking at categories that were not in service of the customer. You know, there were usually multiple middlemen, and there was a lot of sort of 
obfuscating layers between the people buying the thing and the people making the thing. I think that what these businesses are all aiming to do is literally create a direct relationship, but emotionally create a sense of camaraderie between them and and the people they're serving and saying, hey, look, you know, we've cut out the middlemen. We're going to give you something that's much better at a more affordable cost. And we're all in this together. We're on the same side here. And I think that a lot of the design choices that have accompanied that wave are about approachability, simplicity, just making it easy for people. We're not going to have a bunch of bursts and swirls and like all sorts of ways to try to catch your attention with a shiny object. We're just going to tell you what you need to know. That's so interesting uh, to me. You, you, Because you were saying earlier that this soft, friendly aesthetic that we're seeing might be a response to cultural fears about technology, right? But I think what Emily's saying is really different than that. She's saying that a lot of these companies are trying to do something that is better, you know, more. They're trying to be more transparent, more responsible. And that's what their friendly aesthetic is trying to communicate. Do you buy it? Both things can be true. And I think for consumers, it's worth paying attention to what that friendliness is trying to communicate. But getting back to that critique of aesthetic sameness, I asked Emily how she deals with this problem in her own studio. We'll even walk around the studio and, like, everybody's using the same color. And I'm like, well, I guess this color's hot right now, guys. Like, pick a different one, you know. Um, You know, you'll see things happen from one project to another where it's a completely different team and they're making similar choices. And you realize, like, this is a trend right now. And it's nobody's fault. Again, like, we're all, you know, influenced by our environment. But I think it's about getting off our computers. I think it's about, like, getting out of the world of branding altogether. Um, You know, people always ask me, like, what business books do you read? And I'm like, I read novels. Those are my business books. (laughs) What about hiring new talent? Maybe young designers who want to work at Red Lantern or have seen the amazing things that, that you guys have done. Are they showing up and saying, I can do your style? And is that what you want from them? So I think that some of our best, most exciting talent are people who are fresh out of school. It's not even just about trying to like fit into a certain idea of what Red Antler is. I think it's they haven't been in the industry altogether. Like they haven't kind of learned the rules and therefore they're better at breaking them. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that Emily lands basically where Jessica landed, which is it comes down to individual designers. You need to have people who are willing to take a risk or be bold enough to break out of these trends. And I think it's also important to understand these trends and understand why they exist and where they come from and what they mean. It's absolutely true that, as Emily suggested, we're all sort of influenced by the same things. You can't help but be of your time. But if you're more aware of the prevailing trends and what they may or may not imply about the state of our world, then I think you're going to be better positioned to break out of that mold and to push on to something new. Next time on Wireframe, you've been hacked, system breach, access denied. Computers and TV and film scream messages like this all the time. But who designs them and how? If you sit there and you don't question what's going on on that screen, that means I've done a good job. In our next episode, 
we're looking into the design of fantasy user interfaces. Wireframe is produced by Amy Standen, James T. Green, Laura Morris, Matilde Urfalino, and Abby Ruzica. Rachel Ward is our editor. Mixed and sound designed by Katherine Anderson. Additional mixing by Jonathan Roberts and Sam Baer. Original music composed by Billy Libby. Theme music by Peter Leonard. You can subscribe to Wireframe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. And leave us a review. We'd love to hear what you think. Wireframe is a production of Adobe and Gimlet Creative. To learn more about aesthetic monoculture in the changing landscape of design, check out adobe.ly slash wireframe. And to try out Adobe XD for yourself, download it for free at adobe.ly slash gimlet. I'm Koi Vin. Thanks for listening.